Mindfulness Mode. Just live for today. Life's a journey and enjoy the, the day today. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show. We're going to be talking about a gentleman who set out on a journey of self-discovery back in 1979, and it was a planned four-month tour that was going to be a 10,000-mile motorcycle trip. He was riding a 1977 Moto Guzzi Le Mans motorcycle. Don't know if you know what that is, but it's a pretty cool motorcycle. And now he's written a book called Going the Wrong Way. Get a load of this. This book has been on sale for a while and it's had over 300 five-star reviews. So this is pretty interesting. It's going to be fascinating learning about this story. I'm with Chris Donaldson today. Chris, are you in mindfulness mode today? I hope so, Bruce. I hope so. <laughs> what does mindfulness mean to you, Chris? I guess I suppose it means living to the day, making the best out of each day as it comes. Yeah. Um, the book sort of talks about life being as a journey. Um, and very often a journey, you, you make a journey, you, your destination's all important. And I think a lot of people are always planning ahead, thinking what they're going to do tomorrow, what's what's ahead in the, what's the focus ahead. Yeah. Whereas they miss the, what's happening in the day-to-day the day -to -day life, whatever's going on now. Well, Chris, how, how old were you back in 1977 when you set out, or 79, when you set out on this trip? 79. Yeah, I was sweet 21. You're 21. I thought I knew everything. <laughs> so it was indestructible. Wow. <laughs> and then you set off on this trip, and what was it like? What was that experience like when you first set off? Well, I grew up in Belfast in the 70s, and it wasn't probably the, the best uh, environment for a kid to grow up. Uh, there was bombs going off and people getting shot and so yeah. on. Not that we really minded too much, because being kids, we didn't really know anything better. But it's sort of when I got to my teenage years and decided I wanted to get out, get to Australia, see a bit of the world. Uh -huh. So um, I left in October 79 and I didn't get very far. I got to London and the Ayatollah Khomeini decided to take over the American embassy in Tehran and the revolution closed the, basically closed all roads east mm -hmm. to Australia. So I didn't want to go home after two weeks after leaving home to go to telling all my friends to I was going to Australia. I didn't want to come up. Back in two weeks later and giving up. Right. So I decided to go to Africa instead. Okay. And um, went down to went through Europe, down to Athens, to Greece, and uh, across to Israel, back to Cyprus, around Syria, Jordan, around the Middle East, and from Egypt, across the Sahara, down to South Africa. So what was it like and crossing the Sahara Desert on a motorcycle? <laughs> it was pretty grim. Um, my motorcycle was a, a road bike. Uh -huh. I don't know, basically, it's built for sort of freeways and motorways and yeah. going fast, whereas the adventure bikes that I have now are made for, for crossing deserts and stuff. They're nothing like my bike, so it was hard going. But um, I made it after. It took me about a week to get across. Oh, did you? What were the roads they, like on the Sahara Desert? Well, there isn't any road. Oh. Well, there wasn't any road then. So you were literally driving on, on sand then? The yeah. Yeah, I mean, someday, like a worst day, we did 10 miles. Oh, wow. On a road pushing bike. And taking and pushing on a road bike. So it was, uh, I was traveling on a convoy with a couple of other vans and cars and Land Rover. But uh, it was pretty exciting at the time. It was a sort of, a, it was very much a, a matter of thinking up that if you thought of, tried to think of crossing the desert in one go, it would have been just too much to comprehend. Yeah. So the only way I could cope with the, 
actual day-to-day desert crossing was think of every half hour okay not every day just every half hour if i keep a bike on the road keep a bike upright for the next half hour and then think about what happens after that and what happens after that and eventually all the half hours built up to a week coming across the desert so that's probably then a first to realize that you should stop thinking of planning too much about the future and worrying about the past right. and think about the what's happening now the, the, the here and now right so when you set off did you have a reserve of cash did you have money for gasoline and food and everything you needed well i had about a thousand pounds i remember because um it was a sort of your traveler's checks in those days you know credit cards yeah um which is probably about five thousand quid no about seven thousand dollars okay um the u.s so it wasn't an awful lot. It was enough to keep me going, but not an awful lot. It was enough to keep me going for four months. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was if I was going to Australia, of course, because I didn't go to Australia. I ended up on the road for a year and a half. Okay. So it's been pretty, pretty spinthrift. Yeah. Thrifty with my money. Um, after South Africa, I got a job in a yacht, a racing yacht, and I sailed back to Europe in a yacht race, and the sponsors shipped the bike to the States. Yeah. So then I... Drove from LA up to Vancouver and across Canada to Ottawa. Okay. Down and Did you go to the East all. Coast as well? I went down to, I didn't actually see the East Coast until I got to Florida. Uh-huh. I went down through, uh, still worked in North Carolina for a couple of months, got some more cash, and then decided to go to South America. Okay. Um, so I ended up, got through Central America without too much of a problem, but in South America, everything. The wheels fell off more, so to speak. Uh, the bike started breaking down, and I got hepatitis. I oh. ran out of money, and everything sort oh, of no. uh, started going wrong. But I got some I got some cash sent over, and got back to ended up in Argentina. Mm-hmm. Hence the name of the book called "Going in the Wrong Way." I started off I tried to get to Australia, and ended up in Argentina. So you can't get <laughs> much more wrong than that. You yeah, know? that's pretty wrong. Yeah, but. Uh, it was only after I made the trip really I realized that going the wrong way was actually made the trip what it was. It was 20 times the trip I was ever have been just driving across to Australia. Yeah, that's a pretty incredible yeah, trip that you had. That, and, and you have a way of telling about it in the book that has really grabbed people's attention. Have you always been an amazing storyteller? Not at all. Uh, one of the, I mean, it's only, I started writing a book when I got home and the, uh, Somebody beat me to it. Somebody else, a guy called Ted Simon had written a book about driving, riding around the world uh, a few years before me. Mm-hmm. And I found his book when I got home. So it was like somebody had stolen my story, you know, but he'd obviously done it independently mm-hmm. anyway. But he, he wrote a really good book. I thought I'd never be able to compete with that. He was a Sunday Times journalist and he was very experienced in writing. Uh, I was just a student. Mm-hmm. So I put my books away and I put my journals away in 40 years and then Three years ago, I decided to get them out and wrote the book. And um, really, my English teachers at school would have been horrified to think that I'd, or would have been amazed to think that I'd written a book about about, about anything that's got actually got twelve hundred reviews now. Twelve hundred, I think about thousand five, five star reviews. It's, it's really got an excellent reception. Wow, that's amazing. But it's. I mean, people say there's a story, there's a book in everybody, but really, if I can write a book, anybody, literally anybody oh, yeah. can write a book. Yeah. And so <laughs> have you done very much writing over the years? Not at all. No, the only things I've ever written is checks. Okay. Really, and written a diary. Yeah. But, uh, and really, I mean, I couldn't have done it without spell checker. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a big help. 
<laughs> yeah, so it's uh, no, I did take a couple of online courses and learned a bit about writing just through that. But oh, yeah, I think one of the uh, attractions of the book is the rawness of my writing. It's not polished. It's it's, it's I mean it's good enough writing, but it's mm -hmm. it's it's raw. It's told as a twenty one year old. Um, you know, it was interesting for me as a sixty year old reading my diaries and my notes, my journals from when I was twenty one. And reflecting on what had happened then, it gave me another layer that I was able to to write and re reflecting what I was thinking forty years ago in those situations. Um, and the postscript, I suppose, to the story was that uh, once I wrote the book, one of my friends said, "Well, you never actually got to Australia. Why not have another go?" So a year and a half ago, uh, I still had the same motorcycle. I kept it as a souvenir, if you like. So I spent a bit of money doing it up and headed off uh -huh. uh, just after COVID. So uh, a year and a half ago, you you took off on a trip again. Yeah. Now I've got a wife and kids and the job. So I work for myself, but I still have a job. I still have to get back. So we, we did it in two-week sections. We drove for two weeks, parked the bikes up, and came home, went back to work. Mm -hmm. And then came back after a couple of months and did another couple of thousand miles. So it took six different sections to complete the trip. Mm-hmm. But I finally got to Australia in March last, this year, oh. 40, 43 years after I set off. Wow. On the same, same motorcycle. So, so the bike's now 45 years old. I'm 64, so the combined age of 109 by the time we got there. <laughs> that's pretty yeah, incredible. That'll be some sort of a record. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. And so then you got there, and then did you did you fly back, or what did you do? Yeah, and then yeah. did you have the motorcycle shipped back? No, the motor motorcycle is still in Australia. It's in a museum at the minute, in this Motorcycle Museum in Australia, oh. in Melbourne. Oh. Well, I'm hoping to uh, get back out later in the year and ship it over to the states and come across the states or Canada. Oh, and uh, sort of complete a circumnavigation with it that way. Oh, great! Maybe we can uh, have a chat. Maybe you could yeah, have yeah, a right, visit with get back, to get back to Ontario. Yeah, yeah. beautiful, beautiful state. Yeah, it is. But it's yeah, beautiful. so it was interesting. Um, I suppose it was fascinating to do exactly the same trip on exactly the same motorcycle 43 years after they set off originally, just to same same body, slightly tattier and older and decrepit. Right. But it was a bit of a challenge to see if I could still do what I did when I was 21. Oh, very cool. Well, this time you went with a friend, isn't that right? Liam? Liam, yeah, well, that was a bit of a disaster. He got to, we got, we did two trips, two sections together, and then he got, uh, for his own reasons, decided to give up. He came home. Oh, okay. Which was a bit of a bummer for me because uh, it was his idea in the first place. Oh. He talked, he talked me into going. And then he <laughs> so then just was, didn't hang in there. He didn't hang in there. Uh, it was coming up to, to going across Turkey and Iran, and I think Iran was a bit of a, uh, worry too. I can understand crossing countries like Iran and Pakistan and India is not for everybody. Um, I've had obviously a lot of experience of it, so it was probably just too much for him to delve into from a cold start. Yeah, sure. And what kinds of places did you go to to stay overnight? Were they like hostels or hotels? What kinds of accommodation did well, you have? The first time I was away, I was basically camping wherever I could or staying in doll's houses and pretty rough Holes, right it's cheap, cheapest cheapest as I could get so uh, one advantage I had this the second trip was a bit more money so I could afford to stay in the odd uh, holiday in, holiday in there or whatever yes so uh, anyway that I could park the bike up safely yeah but I camped a few nights as well 
Um, one of the weirdest ones was probably when I crossed from Iran into uh, Pakistan. I had to try three different border crossings before I could get out. And the third time was third time lucky. They, was, they let me out of the country. Oh, so they wouldn't let you across the border at the other places? No. First place I said I could only cross as a pedestrian. Oh. Couldn't take the motorbike. The second place I said I could uh, they could take the motorbike, but not a pedestrian, not a person. Oh, that's so crazy. Crazy rules, you know. So there's only one crossing in the whole country. There's, I don't know, maybe a thousand mile border. There's only one place they could cross. So, um, as you can imagine, getting out of Iran was, was quite pleased to finally get, to get out of the country to get my passport yeah. stamped and get across the border. Yeah. And a wee man on a Honda 50 picked me up and he said, Follow me, cross, drove across the bit of wasteland and it straight into this uh, basically a fort oh. which was a jail oh really so he said well you're staying here tonight <laughs> <laughs> so he assured it was for my own good for my own protection because it was a sort of terrorist activity in the place in the area but it was a bit disconcerting whenever they closed the doors that slammed the the, uh, the jail doors behind us yeah i believe it must there was a couple of cells a couple of other cells had various criminals of different categories in them so Myself and a French guy stuck in this room with no furniture, and uh, it worked out well. We, we, um, I mean, the Pakistanis were actually excellent, they actually gave us an armed convoy across the whole country. Oh, did they? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're overzealously guarding us, really. In effect, I think a couple of people had been kidnapped, okay, in recent years, so they were very, very careful to make sure that we didn't fall foul of any. Any, any of the bad guys. I see. So did you continue being a, a motorcycle driver all through your life, or is this something you only did on these trips? Um, I've come in and out of biking. I'm a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. I've done dif different things. Uh, after I get after the, the motorcycling, I, I didn't want to see a bike for about five years after that, probably. Okay. Parked it in the back of the garage, and then after a while, it got it out again, and got into biking again but i got into flying after that oh, and then sailing after that oh so you have your so pilot's that. license yeah um i actually built an airplane oh you did it's a hobby yeah which is one of the other stupid probably the most stupid thing i ever did why is that why is it stupid <laughs> <laughs> well it's much easier to go and buy something it's like built flight making your own clothes you know some things you're yeah. better just buying yeah um it were it was plain flew all right but the design was slightly flawed and mm -hmm. the uh I had problems with the certification of it. The couple of ones in America, it was an American design, and someone crashed. Ah, I see. And so we decided to to give it up after a while. So you're so you're always safer. Sometimes you're safer going the right way. And then you said you're also experienced uh, on the ocean as a as a like sailing. Is that right? Yes, um, I sailed back from South Africa, as I said, uh, in a yacht race, even like the Volvo Ocean Race. It's, uh huh. Currently goes around the world. It was a, like a leg of that, mm -hmm. um, which is quite strange because the boat had stopped in Cape Town at the and they were reprovisioning. Re mm -hmm. And one of the guys hurt his leg when he was ashore. He was an Irish guy, so I got his place. Uh, oh. I've never sailed anything but dinghies before, and suddenly was in the middle of an ocean going out yacht race. So um, it was a bit of a shock to the system after being a solo motorcyclist. To being on a boat with eight other people, yeah, night and day, I bet, in a very small enclosed area. 
So I've had quite a few shocks to the system. I guess. So when you announced that you were going to go on this motorcycle trip three years ago or so, how did your wife and family respond to that? Well, we were shocked at first, and uh, but my wife's very good. She's always supported my crazy endeavors and uh, says, oh, as long as you ride a good will before you go, she was happy enough. Yeah. She should have been a bit concerned about that, shouldn't I? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so no, she's very supportive. And uh, I mean, the great thing about uh, compared to 40 years ago, 40 years ago, I think I phoned home every three months. Maybe my parents would have heard from me because it was in the third world. It was so hard. You had to book a telephone call in the post office of the sure. central in the capital city. And I think I remember it cost me five pounds and and Cairo to phone home for five minutes. Yeah. Which is really not really worth the bother at all, you know. And right. it's, it's like thirty dollars nowadays. Whereas now I could take your mobile phone, you could phone on, on WhatsApp free anywhere in the world practically. Yes. The internet connection. Big change. So you could phone home every day. So it's a huge the internet's one of the biggest differences that uh, I find in every walk of life right yeah. across the world. Sure is a huge difference, yeah, absolutely. And then you got this book published. And uh, how did you feel when you started getting these amazing reviews? Um, I was quite shocked, to be honest, because, it, as I say, I never had any aspirations to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I wanted to put the story down really for my family and for family and friends, if nothing else. Right. But uh, so I was amazed that you know, some of the reviews are quite touching. One guy actually... Was in a, wrote to me from a hospital because he, his son was having spinal surgery and he was in a lot of pain. And I found that by reading chapters of my book to him, he was able to see the hardships that I'd been put under and had to undergo and got through. And he actually said it gave his son great um, hope and helped him get through his ordeal. Mm -hmm. So it was quite touching to have that sort of review to come back for us you've actually done some good like that you know yeah that's that's amazing well your website is chris donaldson dot world chris c-h-r-i-s donaldson d-o-n-a-l-d-s-o-n dot world so mindful tribe check out the website check out the book like i said the book is called going the wrong way and uh it's a, certainly a well-loved book so Chris, I want to just shift the direction a little bit of the interview. I've, I've worked in bullying prevention for a long time, and, and I know you have lots of different stories, but do you have a story about bullying, some type of bullying story where mindfulness would have made a difference? Well, I think probably the the main one I could think of, I'm, sitting, I'm back in Belfast now. I lived in Dubai for eight years and came back three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Irish politics is a Northern Ireland politics is one thing we could really take a lesson out of mindfulness because we're just politicians are just buried in the past. They're always fighting with each other and they can't get over um they can't get they can't get over the past. They can't look at each other as and think this is what's happening today. Yeah. Your present was over last week of the twenty fifth anniversary of the peace agreement. Mm -hmm. And it's quite shocking that the our own guys here are still arguing with each other. Um, and can't move on mentally, physically, for, for, for the betterment of the country. Um, they're, they're both trying to, each side tries to bully each other without thinking of, like, come together, move together, it would be the benefit of everybody. 
Um, the previous leaders both died now, Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness. Mm -hmm. Ironically, would have been um, arch enemies in the 70s and 80s. Uh, one was leader of the Protestant forces and the other was the leader of the IRA, allegedly. Yes. <laughs> um, and they ended up great friends. You know, it was quite ironic to see them. They were seeing them on TV joking with each other and having a laugh. You know, they were able to, to get over the, the the mental barrier that stopped them moving ahead. Um, so it is possible. But ironically, the, the newer people who didn't go through the troubles quite so much as they did haven't been able to, to move forward like that and, and uh, develop a new relationship. Mm. Interesting. I don't know if that fits your yeah. topic. Thank you. Thank you. Chris, I, uh, I want to also talk to you about the diagnosis that you've had, a diagnosis of Parkinson's. When did that happen and, and what led up to that to make you go for the tests? Well, I just felt there's something uh, a bit of an uneasiness in my left hand at once about five years ago. And Parkinson's is a very difficult disease to um, to diagnose, apparently. So it took a while for them to work out it probably is Parkinson's. Right. But I've been very lucky that it's been quite mild and uh, on, a, on aggressive. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Not aggressive. Right. Sure. So it's, it's pretty much seems to be quite dormant at the minute. That's right. But one of the reasons I suppose I wanted to do the trip to Australia three years ago was to challenge myself. Right. I'm the sort of idiot that says if something puts, somebody puts a barrier up in front of me, I just want to charge through it. Yeah. Rather than give up. So I thought I'll give myself a, a challenge to see if I can ride a motorbike to Australia with, with the Parkinson's. And I'd actually find it was quite, um, it, it, it was quite, not easy, but uh, it didn't give me a hard time because when you're riding a motorbike, you're you're nearly it's nearly a meditation. Yeah. At times, because you're focused on one thing, which is riding a motorbike. What's ahead? What's behind you? Mm -hmm. So you're you're in a, a zone of your own. Right. And it's, it's actually can be quite relaxing after a while. You're you become one with the bike, and you you just you're just there. You're able to think about uh, what's going on today rather than tomorrow, and and relax. Yeah. Um, so it was it was quite a it wasn't as difficult as I thought it could have been. Yeah. So have you been a person who've met, who's meditated over the years? Has meditation been part of your life? Not particularly. Um, not particularly, I suppose, in the traditional sense of the word, but I do think flying or playing golf even or driving motorbikes, you're, you're cutting yourself off from other people. Mm -hmm. Um you're concentrating on one thing and i think that is a form of meditation that you can then your mind can relax and think about what else think about yourself about what's going on and come to new ideas and reflections yeah that's interesting well as we move forward in the interview chris i want to ask you five quick answer questions so just 30 second answers are perfect first one is this who's one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life Probably my wife, Julie, um, has been the most helpful to me in that way because she's, I would always, in the past in business, I've always been planning ahead, thinking what's happening in the future and worrying about what happened in the past and so on. Where she's brought me to enjoy the moment today and what's happening now and mm -hmm. giving me the space to do crazy things like ride around the world on a motorbike. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, 
That really is awesome. Well, tell me this, uh, how has mindfulness affected how you deal with your emotions? Um, I think by controlling myself and, um, as I say, doing things on my own by like motorcycling or um, swimming or whatever, by sport, doing physical exercises on my uh, mental exercise on my own, I've been able to to control to get away from outside influences. I find that's been very beneficial to me because I'm very easily distracted by what's going on around me. So that's probably the way I've been able to control my emotions and then use the time to come to decisions and, and assess what's going on like that. Sure. Sure. Let's talk about breathing. Do you have any comments or any tips about doing breathing that really can help you with mindfulness? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. Really two second answer. That's the short answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's the short answer. Yeah, I'm here for you to tell me that one. Yeah, no problem at all. Uh, well, Chris, uh, you know, your book is something, it's a book I really recommend. It's, it's really amazing how people love this book and your storytelling and, and just, Thanks very much. Yeah, just so exciting how you've been able to put this all into this this book going the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but are there any other books that you would recommend that are somehow related to mindfulness? Um, probably in the motorbike themes and the art of motorcycle maintenance would be my oh, yeah. favorite. Uh, it's obviously been around for a while, but it's as fresh today as it's ever been, I think. Yeah. Have you read it? I have not read it, no. Yeah, no. It's a great book. Uh, it starts off as a travel. It's, it's, it starts with motorcycling and it works through Zen, where Zen um, influences and lifestyles and thought processes. Um, I haven't read it for a while. I must know you mentioned it. I must break, take it out again yeah, and go through it, it again. Yeah. Check it out again. Are there any apps that you recommend or any apps that you ever use to kind of stay organized, stay focused, stay centered? Well, that's a bit of a funny one too, because I used to make apps. Uh, oh. I worked in Dubai as a app developer for five or six years until three or four years ago in, the, uh, in another, another life. Um, but I don't really, as somebody I've worked with them, I don't really have a great deal of time for them anymore sure. because screen time is you do enough screen time with work and writing and whatever um and I'll, i think you gotta do it yourself yeah yeah so i hear ask you. For, you ask your phone to do it you know i think we spend too much time on our phones as it is <laughs> i think that's true yeah uh, well yeah thanks for answering those five questions and as i was uh, interviewing you i was going to ask you yeah what was your career or did you have a number of careers you've now told us that you were an app creator but what else did you do in your life well the family business was furniture for retail furniture selling furniture so I started off with that and i developed a business into a property company mm -hmm. uh, and then we got into fitness sort of Workout, workout franchise. Mm -hmm. So, we had a very varied, and then I went into mobile apps. Um, but a very varied um, career. I've probably doesn't say much about me that I can't concentrate on one thing for too long. <laughs> um, 
I enjoy doing different things. I enjoy learning uh, different different techniques and different skills, I suppose. So it's an enjoyable learning to, how to do different skills. So as I said, I've been quite a varied career path. Right. Uh, I've gone around full circle now back into property again. Nice. Well, Chris, so. it's been really exciting to talk to you in Mindful Tribe. The website is chrisdonaldson.world. Check out the book on Amazon, Going the Wrong Way by Chris Donaldson. And Chris, do you have any final words of advice before we say goodbye? Uh, just live for today. Life's a journey and enjoy the day-to-day -day journey as you go through it because the destinations, we all know where that is. Yeah. Uh, so live for today. Good advice. Chris, so great to meet you and thanks for being on Mindfulness Mode. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Bruce. All the best. Bye now. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I want to thank my sponsor, Athletic Greens. They have a product called AG1 that I started taking some time ago because I wanted to improve my gut health. I wanted to optimize my immune system. I wanted to just improve my health in general, and this has really done it. AG1 contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, and probiotics. So whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, or whatever your diet is, this will work for you. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial ingredients, and it supports better sleep and better alertness. Athletic Greens uses the best products based on the latest science and it costs less than $3 a day. Like I said, the product is called AG1, the company is called Athletic Greens, and they have over 7,000 five-star reviews online. So. Here's a special offer for you, Mindful Tribe. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com mindfulness. So once again, that's athleticgreens.com mindfulness to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.